Welcome to Thesis, a podcast about trends in higher education systems in international spheres, exploring the field of higher education across the world. I'm your host, Kelly Davis. In today's episode, we discuss the topic of university autonomy and student protests in past and present Nicaragua. The conversation features Dr. Wendy Bellinger and her perspectives on the Nicaraguan government's relationship to universities and to stakeholders of the universities. Our discussion is focused on intense, at times emotional topics and is information sensitive. We ask our listeners to be mindful of where they share this episode and to avoid sharing it to social media platforms for the sake of the safety of our guest. Hi, everyone. Before we move into the conversation today with Dr. Wendy Bellinger, I wanted to go over a bit of context about what's been happening in Nicaragua. Our story today begins long before 2018, but that's where I'm going to start right now, as we'll cover a bit more about that in the episode. In that year, 2018, student protests, which were regarded as peaceful, were met with violence by the Nicaraguan government at that time, which is still in power today and led by Daniel Ortega, was a longtime leader of the Sandinista National Liberation Front, FSLN, Nicaragua's Socialist Party. Since these protests, the government has exercised more and more control over Nicaraguans, reacted to public reprimands of this power with violence. The United Nations, European Union, and other governments and organizations have called out human rights violations that have been enacted by the Nicaraguan government. Sanctions have been placed on the country's economy, and Nicaraguans are leaving their homes because of what has been going on. This episode looks specifically at threats to university autonomy and reactions of students in this context, but they are intertwined with these violent actions. Please take note of that, that this is a heavy conversation, but listen on to learn more about the challenges that higher education in Nicaragua faces today. Welcome, Dr. Wendy Bellinger, to the Thesis Podcast. You're here to talk with us today about higher education in Nicaragua. So to start us off, if you can tell us about the last 100 years in Nicaragua, generally, uh, this country has been afflicted by military dictatorships and other authoritarian regimes. And you mention in your book, which we'll link in the show notes, that Nicaraguan higher education is situated in this historical context, which has really shaped a very unequal society. How does this context shape higher education's role in Nicaragua? Well, uh, Kelly, thank you for having me. It's really nice to be talking about uh, this topic today. As you rightly mentioned, Nicaragua has a very, an extremely unequal society. Um, however, there's also a strong awareness of this reality and social justice has been at the center of several struggles in the country's history. So in this context regarding higher education, While the elite, you know, the country's elite have traditionally sent their children to study abroad, especially to the United States, the youth that remained here and went to the Nicaraguan universities have found that universities have been arenas where students and some professors come together and organize to promote social change and to demonstrate against human rights violations at different points in history. So as a result, although higher education enrollment in Nicaragua is just 20%, the rate is 20%, Nicaraguan universities have never been marble towers, you know, as Mm. sometimes universities are, are characterized. 
they have been places of organized resistance where an aspect, I believe, of, of the habitus of student leaders is precisely to have a sense of responsibility with social problems. Great. And so your book is titled Higher Education, State Repression, and Neoliberal Reform in Nicaragua. What exactly do we mean by neoliberal reform in the context of higher education? And as well as what do we mean by university autonomy? Uh, That's a good question, because neoliberal reform in Nicaragua, uh, in Nicaraguan higher education, is not about the creation of links to the private sector you know, through patents and other ways of commercializing research for the generation of private profit, which is what you see in the global north. However, it has displayed, I think, three main strategies, you know, that we can define as as neoliberal. The first one is that public universities are allowed to create, and they they have some experiences, they create parallel programs where they can charge fees to students who can pay in exchange for a better service in terms of campus facilities and other differentiating elements. So basically we have public universities that have created private universities within their, you know, the, the public institution. And this would allow them to you know, generate some profit. Uh, The second element, I believe, is that uh, we saw during the 90s and the 2000s, the creation of, you know, almost 50 private universities in the country. So they were authorized to grant degrees. And basically, these are businesses. Anyone could, you know, like just open up a university in a house with not even a library, laboratories, not even the basic uh, conditions for um, for teaching, and they, you know, were allowed to function. So, so and the third, yeah. Oh, sorry, uh, it sounds like kind of a lack of maybe what we consider accreditation or quality standards. I'll be going into that. Uh, Great, topic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because yeah. Um, That's something that occurred in El Salvador in a very different way. But the third issue that I consider to be a symptom of um, neoliberalism and is the most important one for me, the most interesting one, is the deployment of what you just said, the, the discourse on quality assessment and quality assurance. I consider that neoliberal reform. This discourse underlies and reinforces the idea of that higher education is a personal investment rather than a public good. And, and it turns students into clients, like effectively ki- tries to change this student identity. And it turns professors into service providers. Um, so in this discourses, um, cultural issues that are very important that we know that have an impact on the quality of education, such as, you know, race, racism, gender issues, are just invisibilized. So this is how neoliberal reform looks like in Nicaragua. And um, the other concept that I would like to explain, you know, you asked, what do we mean by university autonomy? Um, it's This is actually a very popular topic in Nicaragua. So it's it's part of the public discourse. 
I mean, people for many decades talk about university autonomy in this country. And this is because it has been the focus of several student protests for decades, like even very violent protests. And autonomy is, we have a law in the country that declares that universities have uh, teaching and academic autonomy, organic administrative autonomy, financial and economic autonomy. And originally this meant, you know, this was meant to protect universities from the interference of governments and political parties. That was the aim of this law. And as a result, the presidents of universities, deans also, were no longer appointed by a president of the republic or a minister. Instead, uh, universities started to have elections. So these were elected posts. Student admission as well was protected from uh, government interference because of this law. However, with time, public debate, you know, and the demands uh, have only focused on one issue, and that is that universities should receive 6% of the national budget every year. So in that way, autonomy has been reduced to the financial aspect, while the other, all the other aspects mentioned in the law have been kind of neglected, I would say. And how does the privatization element interplay with that also pu- public funding really coming from the government? Yeah, um, the National Council of Universities granted this permission, you know, for all these private universities to function. And they would receive a fee, you know, for in exchange of opening up this, uh, what, you know, pejoratively we call the Raj universities. So they would be small businesses. Some of these businesses belonged to uh, government officials, for example. So in that way, they were allowing, you know, some kind of corruption. Mm. And um, there was no uh, concern whatsoever regarding what kind of education these institutions were granting. And they are like good businesses. Mm, Okay, that's an interesting kind of dynamic, (laughs) for sure, very different from some of the other models that we have that we see commonly where neoliberal reforms have that influence. And you've touched on this a little bit, but what are some of the mechanisms that government can governments can use to keep more control over universities. So you mentioned the funding. Um, it's that's interesting because I'm from the United States, and in the United States, uh, there is an argument from people who want to see more public funding going into universities because it enables ideally uh, pe- more people to attend university for a lower price. But there's it seems like there's kind of a another side to the story if that depending on how that relationship works and maybe what other sort of legal parameters are at play. Yeah, and this debate public private is so important, so interesting. And here in, in Nicaragua, I, I think it goes even deeper. I think we will, we will be covering this more. But you asked about some mechanisms, you know, that the government has used to keep control. And I think Nicaragua is a very interesting case study in, in that regard. Because based on our experience, public universities in a country like Nicaragua can, that is so unequal, can very easily be absorbed into a government's or a political party's networks of clientelism. 
So we have a populist regime and that uses higher education as a way of acquiring political clients. So we've seen here how university admission and the tenure system can just completely come under control of a political party that decides basically who is worthy of either based on their own interests, their own criteria. So we have some, some uh, professors that are, you know, they are just expelled <laughs> because they don't do what the party says. So I also think in our case that accreditation systems are a perfect carrot and stick. They are controlled by the government and because of the philosophy of these accreditation systems, instead of empowering professors, they create a governmentality in which professors accept that they are not good enough if they don't show willingness to participate in these processes. So these two phenomena, what I've seen in, in Nicaragua is that they, they've come together, they've coincided in time. So political clientelism and quality assurance, they've coincided in Nicaragua and they've debilitated university autonomy. They have undermined especially the role of the faculty and they've facilitated repressive practices. So what we have now is that the national system for accreditation, you know, evaluation and accreditation is also under government control. So they decide which university gets accredited and which doesn't. That's a lot of power, the finance, the financial element and the accreditation, the the ability to say you are you are valid and can function in in the country. That's a lot. Yes. Yes. And it's and it's impacting. You mentioned admissions and the tenure track. Those are two different ends of the higher education system. So it's it's really kind of it's not bookended because there's there's more, of course. But but that's two very different elements that there's a bit of a grasp on. But turning towards the students and what their role has been, what has that role of student protests been in Nicaraguan history? Yes, uh, traditionally uh, they have been involved in social struggles like it's almost like a social category <laughs> the university students and they're expected you know to be to take part of of all the you know and demonstrations and protests and everything so they supported the initial movement for university autonomy in the 50s and the 60s um, then the revolutionary efforts in the 70s higher education students were there and the revolutionary government in the 80s was also supported by university students. So later what happened is that the student unions, they have a, they developed this complete allegiance to the FSLN, the party, the political party, and fell completely under their control. So then you had student leaders, the unions, who were like the leader forever, you know, they would never graduate, they would just stay there. And they became like party brokers inside the campuses. So in the 90s and the 2000s, when the governments were not um, uh, uh, FSLN governments, they th the students were used as shock forces. You know, these uh, students were sent to the streets to protest against these opposition governments. And even, you know, they were sent 
to 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 cause to create you know chaos in this in the city and and all sorts of you know dangerous um, behaviors were displayed. Some students died as a result. So so it's it's a strong um, it's a strong role in the government. It's a risky place to be in. There's a lot yes, of that's right. For this the is students. these are the public university students. Mm. Mm. who fell into this, you know, every time that the national budget was being decided, then they would say, okay, they're not, they don't want to grant the 6% of the budget to the the universities, they're not respecting the law. So, you know what, students go protest and go to the streets and they were clashes between the students and the police. Mm. So... So they are quite present in the imaginary of everyone, university students. Mm-hmm. Can you define FSLN as an acronym? Yeah, that's the Sandinista Liberation Front. National, the Sandinista National Liberation Front. Thank you. And so bringing the role of students in protesting to more contemporary, the contemporary moment, there were some protests in 2018. Can you tell us a bit about the nature of these protests, protests such as how many students were involved, what it was they were protesting, where, what methods of protest they used? Give us kind of an idea of what was happening. Yes, in 2018, there was a forest fire in the Indio Maiz Biological Reserve. Um, then there was a social security reform that meant pensioners would see their payments reduced. So the students were, you know, seeing all this was happening and they perceived uh, that two things, that the government was being negligent in their response to the fire and that this reform to social security was unfair to the pensioners. So um, basically they, they just, they stood on the streets and sidewalks holding cardboard signs and chanting, you know, like traditional Pacific, you know, peaceful protests. And then these protests, grew with more and more people attending them. It's really hard to know uh, numbers, to know how many it was. They were massive, massive. We hadn't seen that in decades. And they started, people started waving the national flag and, and becoming more creative. They composed songs and they danced. They also, of course, you know, started posting profusely in social networks. And this was like a na- nationwide demonstration that was initiated by university students, but then the rest of the population just joined. So uh, quickly, like very quickly, these peaceful demonstrations were repressed and they were, you know, the government would send uh, shock forces. Some of these were higher education students in the official unions, you know, which were controlled by this political party in, in the government. So they used force, they used weapons, they sent snipers. And so demonstrators were wounded, they were raped, tortured, killed. I mean, more than 300 people were killed during these protests in 2018. So other people are still imprisoned as a result, and new people are being taken to jail still today. So uh, this conflict just kept escalating and escalated and escalated, and, and the repression has been growing steadily ever since. Wow, that's a that is really heavy and I see what how people can can wonder how this kind of thing would happen. Yeah. I mean, was that what had there been much recent 
violent backlash like that from the government prior to 2018? Uh, yeah, yeah. Prior to 2018, we saw like, for example, if uh, there was um, elections were being forged or something, people went to demonstrate and they would send their shock forces to repel them and, and you know, throw rocks, basically mm. hit them with sticks and just you had to run for your life. Mm. But the difference this time is that they took prisoners and then they, you know, brought snipers out and they killed even young children, like high school, high school uh, students as well. Uh, so we saw a level of violence that this country hadn't seen, I think, since the war. Mm. Mm. So university students were involved and the government has these already tight controls surrounding the universities, restricting autonomy. Was there any reaction from the government specifically targeting the universities? Yes, 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 because they couldn't conceive that higher education students were rebelling against them, you know, because traditionally students would rebel against uh, right-wing governments. That was, you know, the, the idea. So there, there were battles in university campuses. In the, in the case of public universities, uh, the authorities, you know, the presidents, the deans, they were all faithful, you know, they were loyal to the government. So they cooperated, you know, in this repression. So some campuses that had been occupied by students who were forcibly removed and some were killed in the process. Many students were expelled, uh, most of them without transcripts. So you have very sad cases of students who were like, had been in medicine five years and then suddenly they have no record. And they, they did this like for to, uh, many, many students and also staff who protested were made redundant, like professors were made redundant. And well, the latest development has been the confiscation of six private universities. You know, the government just took them. And um, they also expelled uh, from the National Council of Universities, some of the universities. One of them is where I, where I work. So this meant that they took away, there are, well, from the 10 universities that conform, this is, I think this is important, from the 10 universities that conformed the National Council of Universities since its creation, you know, and received this money, the 6%, six of them were not public. They were private universities that uh, with, with this public money would uh, grant scholarships to students. So they could study in a private university with quality without, you know, paying. So this public funding was taken away as well, you know, just as when, a way of retaliation. Mm. When you say that the government took universities, what does that mean exactly? What's the difference between a government taking a university and expelling a university? Yeah, they, uh, they are, there were only four public universities in the, in the country. Um, from these universities, they expelled any student who had been active in the protests, like, which they could, you know, find out. So like, for example, you had your Facebook and there you would, you know, <laughs> publish things 
in protest so or they saw you in a in a you know in the street in a demonstration or you were uh, one of the leaders who uh, took the campus like occupied the campus all these people were either thrown to jail uh, or expelled with no transcripts you know from the public universities and they wanted the same from private universities some universities complied and they just expelled these students and others you know we said no but the problem was that as a result they said well you're not going to receive any more public funds and other private universities were confiscated like they just you know take it from the owners so there's one university that used to belong to the baptist church they just took it from them mm, and it becomes under public domain essentially Exactly. So it's basically like stealing. Mm. It's It's essentially saying you misbehaved. So now we're going to really leverage even more control than we had before, even with this funding mechanism. Yes. Yes. And what is the what what for the private universities? Do they charge tuition? What does it mean that that they've lost? I mean, it is a significant amount of funding regardless. But yes. Yeah, it means um, in in our, in this mixed model, the private universities that were members of CNU, they received like maybe between thirty and fifty percent of their budget uh, was came from public funds. So that meant that you could uh, effectively receive fifty percent of students without charging them. So you like students from underprivileged homes could apply for a scholarship and this scholarship came from public funds and other students who could pay they just you know they pay their their tuition fees mm-hmm. so that's how the mixed model worked mm, okay mm. so we're going to wrap up this piece of the conversation with a quote that you used in the prologue of your book and it is from father ignacio Iacoria and The quote that you use is, the university should be free and objective, but objectivity and liberty should be partial. And we are freely partial towards the poor majority because they are unjustly oppressed, and in them lies the truth of reality. Who was this person who you were quoting in the book, and how do you interpret this particular statement? Why is it important in the context of your book and in the context of university autonomy? Yeah, uh Father Ignacio Yacuría was a Spanish Jesuit priest who worked at the UCA in El Salvador. That's the Universidad, the Central American University in El Salvador. And he was the president of the university when he was killed in 1989 by the the, the army, you know, the, the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was killed along with other five Jesuit priests and two women who, who worked there. And that quote highlights what he thought about Jesuit universities. Um, he believed that they are mission-driven higher education institutions and they should promote social justice. That's like their mission. This quote is also a message, I believe, for Latin American governments for the middle classes in in our societies and for the elites 
Father Yakuria, he believed universities should always be reflexive. So in a way, that's also a message for people who work in universities, for us. And he believed that we should always be assessing whose side we are working for, whether, you know, we should be able to stop and think uh, whether we are perpetuating inequalities in our society or improving the life of the poor. So this is a political stance. It's a stance that opposes current discourses, I believe, um, that promote competition, university rankings, you know, value for money, college as a private investment. This is the opposed, it's like the totally other a different view of the university. And I believe this is deeper than, than the public versus private debate, um, because, you know, I should highlight that Ayacuria was the president of a private university. And I, I do believe this, this is, means a lot for university autonomy, because it means that higher education should be protected from private and also from public interference that prevents you know, the kind of interference that prevents it from serving social justice. So universities, um, we should be able to speak truth to power, as they say, and whoever funds higher education, you know, whether it's the taxpayer or through private investment, it shouldn't be at the service of, of the elites, you know, and perpetuating inequalities. So, of course, Kelly, like this is, this is easier said than done, right? And in no way is it straightforward. But at the same time, Ayacuria wasn't like, he wasn't advocating for a, like a revolution or for universal access to higher education. You know, he really accepted that in our countries, university students are part of a like a privileged class, the privileged classes. But but he considered um, important important for university professors that to take some time and think about the kind of impact we are having in our unequal society. There's something about the quote and the way that you just described every, the the quote and and what it means and and what it means to to you and what you think it means to university autonomy that makes me think about how you also described the student protests in 2018 how it was very peaceful there were elements of there was signs and of course you know people being loud but there was also singing and there's something about that that it it really is about your something that education can do as long as it is protected from external interests in the in the in this argument uh, is it can protect those who need to be protected or advocate for them in this peaceful manner so i think that's a fantastic quote to sort of put in position and especially the way you described it oh yes there is there is so much higher education can do you know absolutely our societies and i think that it's important to remember that in places where protesting come doesn't always come at this cost and it's something that to be able to to speak and to be safe when we do it is really to be valued which because it doesn't it doesn't happen everywhere or to everyone but to kind of wrap it up on a bit of a lighter note, clearly higher education is important to you. It's important to anyone who is listening. So we t- ask this question of all of our guests. Who was someone who was particularly influential in your higher education journey 
or in the mm-hmm. development of your professional research or professional career? Uh, that's a really nice question because I always think about my, my professors from the Department of Social Anthropology in the University of Manchester, uh, particularly Professor John Gledhill and Professor Peter Wade. Um, and it's amazing because I learned about Latin America. I learned about my own culture through their work, through them, like two very British men. <laughs> so I, I think I, I kind of learned how to see my own society, you know, in a better, more complex way. And I also remember Professor Sarah Green, you know, she introduced me to gender studies. And you know how that is also a, an eye opener. And that was great. And, and I, and for me also, my, as you say in, in German, Dr. Muta, my PhD supervisor in, in Germany, in Philips University, Marburg, Professor Annika Otla, because she believed that this is an important topic. So she, she supported my research for my PhD. That's fantastic. And I'm glad that you're able to share their, their names in, the, in this podcast. And yeah, that's really great. Uh, and also the international influences can really kind of help us see things that we have ta- not necessarily taken for granted, but just under, you know, they're, they're the basis of our understanding of life, the basis of our personal philosophies. And so it's great that you were able to expand beyond Nicaragua and, and get those different perspectives to reflect on your own your own home country. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and university reforms have been global. I mean, mm. they have been. Their universities uh, look a lot alike. You know, mm. Mm. It, it, it doesn't. You you find the same phenomena everywhere. The global north and global south. You see the same thing happening in universities. Mm. Dr. Wendy Ballinger, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today and discussing what is really a very intense. Uh, deep and oftentimes emotional topic. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. In our next episode, we will be discussing academic freedom in the Canadian province of Quebec, where a bill defining academic freedom recently passed into law. Did you know that French is the official language of Quebec? In May 2022, Quebec politicians approved Bill 96 to protect and promote the French language in the province. Part of this bill focuses on protecting the French in the context of higher education, in addition to other sectors already covered in the Charter of the French Language. Today's thesis episode does not take position on the issues discussed on the podcast. Opinions expressed on this episode are solely those of the guests or hosts. If you liked what you listened to today, please follow the podcast and feel free to leave us a rating or a comment. This podcast is produced and edited by Katerina Korinska, Ayla Rubinstein, Tracy Waldman, Kelly Davis, and Maria Angeles Hidalgo. Original music is produced by Petter Strum. Thanks for listening to Thesis. We'll talk to you next time.